Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you this morning. Well, we continue this week with the second part of our time in Colossians chapter 3. And if you remember last week, I mentioned that this letter is about growing up. Growing up into the image of our Creator, into the image of Jesus. And to get at this, Paul uses a particular me- uh, metaphor to talk about this maturing in our faith, this ethic, if you will. He uses this metaphor of clothing, of taking certain things off. And so this week in our text, he continues the same metaphor by saying that there are certain things that we should put on in their place. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So, if, uh, so let me read that for us from Colossians 3, um, uh, verses 12 through 17. You can follow along in your Bibles or feel free to just listen as I read. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, and if one has a complaint against one, one against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, this is God's word as given for our good. Let, Let me pray for us. Father, we um we are thankful for this time. And we pray that uh by your truth and your grace that you would lead us to uh to hear those things, to have ears to hear them and receive, to receive your grace. God, we ask that you meet us, some of us maybe in places of sorrow and some of us in places of joy, that uh, you would meet us and come to us and speak into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to tell you about the first time that I went rafting with my parents when I was uh, six or seven years old. Now, I should tell you that what exists in my, rem- in my memory around this event is not uh, sharp detail, but rather what lives on in my memory is how I felt. And as we all know, the feelings of a seven-year-old kid are always rational and full of clarity. So my parents and I, we were camping in Missouri with some of their friends, and part of this trip, it involved uh, a rafting trip, trip down uh, the river nearby. Well, to make a longer story shorter, I will mention that the raft we were on, it, uh, we, as we went down the river, it, uh, it got punctured. <laughs> and we all floated to an island in the middle of this river, and we were waiting to be rescued. And the part that is significant, the part that I want you to know that remains alive in my memory, is how I felt on that island as we waited for rescue. 
I cried tears of, dis of despair. <laughs> I mean, the sort of hard and relentless tears that make it hard to catch your breath. I mean, that was me. And no matter how hard my parents tried to comfort me, I was convinced that I would be on this island for the rest of my life. And in my seven-year-old world, <laughs> a few hours, it felt like days. And to make matters worse, there were other rafters floating by. They were laughing and enjoying the ride and, and safe and on their way home. But after a few hours, the rescue raft arrived. And what stands out in my memory was the relief, the sense of peace that I felt, even as a seven-year-old. It was as though the sun finally broke through after, after days of cloudiness, that the birds came out and were chirping and trees were budding and flowers began to blossom. Right quickly, my despair was lifted and I was happily ready to return to my joyful innocence. <laughs> well, honestly, this feeling of contrast, this feeling of relief, this feeling of night and day is the kind of contrast that lies at the heart of this part of Paul's letter to his friends in this little church in Colossae. He has just talked about these things that need to be put off in their lives of the people who follow Jesus. And we can be honest and just say that none of it, none of it was pretty. I mean, none of it. It was, like, it was, it was stuff like impurity and anger and covetousness and greed and malice and slander and wrath. I mean, these are the things, and if you let me put it like this, that make humans go dark that make them break bad and make us spin into all kinds of trouble and sadness and bitterness and shame. And you know, it was more than a list. It's not just a list that Paul had given the church. I mean, it was a picture of a way of being that was filled with grasping and getting and selfishness and loneliness. It was not a life that any of us in here were made for, and it was a twisted, broken parody of what it means to be human. But Paul says, and here comes the big relief, in Jesus we are being renewed, he said, after the image of our Creator. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross in his resurrection, in his ascension, the damage that the old way of life worked in us, the damage that the old way of life worked in the world around us, it is being undone. And now it's like Paul shows up with a rescue boat, and finally, finally, we can see the way off the island. We can see this picture of what it is like to grow up in Jesus, this picture of maturity, this beautiful and bright picture of what a renew, renewed humanity can look like, right here and right now. And church, this was the human life that we have been made for. And so this is how Paul says it. He says, to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. And before we go any further into all of those things he said that we ought to be putting on, I want to hover for a minute on these astounding words. I mean, I don't, have, I don't have any idea if Paul imagined that his friends in this, little, in this little church would know what he just pulled off. 
But in order for them to know what it was that he was just saying with, these, with those words, I think that they, they'd have to be more familiar with the Old Testament than they probably were. But maybe they did. And maybe they knew. But we can understand what he is doing for sure. <laughs> I mean, Paul uses words to just, Paul uses three words to describe this little church. Holy and chosen and loved. And I want you to know that he did not pull those three words out of a hat because they sound nice. (laughs) No, these are the three words that God has made central and absolutely central to the identity of his people. I mean, he uses these three words over his people again and again and again in the Old Testament. You are chosen, you are holy, and you are loved. There was a a great example of that in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 7. In that passage, God tells his people that they're holy to him, that he has chosen them to be his treasured possession, and that he did not choose them because they were great. He did not choose them because they were mighty people, and he did not choose them because they looked like they had their act together. They were not mighty. They were not great, and they for sure did not have their act together. He says that he chose them because he loves them. And church, this is always how it works with God. This is always the way of grace. This is always how the grace of God comes to us. And I'll tell you what, (laughs) there is no way in a million years that any of us sitting here can ever, ever hear that enough starting with me. I mean, God does not offer his grace to us because we look lovely. God does not offer his grace to us because we look like we might have some potential. God does not offer his grace to us because we straightened out our act for a week or two and now look good. No, he offers his grace to us because he loves us, and that's it. And as Paul says it to the Ephesian church, God made us alive together with Jesus because of the great love which, with which he has loved us. And so if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, or that you are even wrestling in your faith, <laughs> you're wondering and you're thinking about it, I want to make sure that you hear this. Because honestly, it is the best thing that any of us could ever hear. You do not have to come to God with anything in your hands. You don't, have to come, you don't have to get your act together to come to God. You don't have to look squared away to come to God. You don't have to get cleaned up. You don't have to get sobered up. You don't have to finish your dissertation projects to come to God. You can come to him however you are with, open, with the open hands of repentance and faith, and he will meet you right there with his grace. That is how he always comes. And of course, for those of us this morning who are Christians, I just want to say again that this is the kind of thing that Paul reminds us of and loves to remind us of all of the time. I mean, listen, he does not tell the church, you could be loved if only you put on all of these things that I'm about to tell you about. He does not say that, he says that you can put on all these things because you are loved. 
And that is the only reason, precisely because you are loved. And you have everything you need to live this life that you are called to live. We talked about this a little bit last week, and it's worth saying again that Christian ethics, that the way that we live our lives with one another and the way that we live our lives in the world around us, that the ethics are not some application of some abstract moral code that is floating out there in the atmosphere somewhere. That's not how this works. But Paul is is not telling the church and he's not telling us to just buckle down and to do right. And here's the list. (laughs) Here's the list, by the way, for reference that you need to do to do all of these things right. No, Paul's not saying that. Instead, Paul's Christian ethics rests solely on the relationship that we have already found ourselves in. We are chosen and holy and dearly loved. We are in union with Christ, and it is a union that is completely driven by Jesus' self-giving love for us. So an ethic that is born out of actual relationship, it is never about just get up and do right. You know what happens when I live that way? When I live like you just get up and and do right? I mean, I become unbelievably self-righteous and I try to hide everything I can from everybody. I either try and convince people and God that I have it all together or I work hard at keeping my distance so that people won't really see the broken me. Or I just become tired and frustrated and and I quit. (laughs) And maybe you know what that feels like. But Paul tells us that our our ethic is born out of something far more beautiful than that. It comes from allowing the beauty and the power and the glory of the new life that Jesus has already given to us. It comes from allowing all of that to flood into every part of our lives. And getting that right, getting that distinction between those two things right, getting that distinction between just do right and be who you are, it is huge in the Christian life. So if our, ex- our ethics are based on a life of Jesus being formed in us, then it will be, I hope, no surprise at all that the things that we put on will look like Jesus looks. It will bear a family resemblance. Well, first Paul says, that, Paul says we put on compassionate hearts. It is a deep inward empathy towards others, and in particular, a deep inward empathy towards others' sorrows and others' pain and others' needs. Paul says we'll put on kindness. And I cannot tell you how much I love how plain and unadorned that is, just to be kind. (laughs) And be kind, and I'm sure that I don't need to tell you that being kind is in short supply. I'm not sure about Champaign-Urbana, but in Chicago, we could use some kindness. Don't get me wrong, I love Chicago, and if I had a choice, I'm not sure I would want to live anywhere else. But I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the common life in the city does not often form the virtue of kindness. It seems largely absent, for instance, in the political life of the city. (laughs) 
And it, in some ways, it seems inessential at the very best. But then you think of Jesus. Think of him with the woman at the well, or you think of Jesus with the tax cheat Zacchaeus, or you think of Jesus with a thief hanging beside him on the cross, and you remember that Jesus was kind. And his kindness, it melted icy hearts. And Paul goes on, he says that we will put on humility. And I have to tell you that honestly, there is probably no virtue on this list more laughed at, more scoffed at in the world that, to which Paul was writing than humility. In Greek literature, humility was dismissed as something to be ashamed of. But in the true story of the world, it doesn't work out like that. <laughs> in the true story of the world, the one who had the rightful claim to absolutely everything, he humbled himself so that, we could, so that he could have us, and so that, he could ha- so that we could have this life. And now, as Paul says, his name is exalted above every name, not despite, and despite his humility, No, but precisely because of his humility. (laughs) Paul says that that we will put on meekness in the way in which we approach others. And we will put on patience no matter how they approach us. And these virtues will have an immediate flesh and blood everyday effect. That we will begin to bear with one another. And we will begin to forgive one another in the ways we have been forgiven. I mean, these are the clothes, Paul Paul is saying. These are the clothes that Jesus has made for you, and now he hands them to you with his nail-scarred hands. But there is this one thing that Paul says. There's this one thing that's left. It's like a clasp or a belt that we need to put on that binds all of these other things together in perfect harmony. And it is the one thing that we need, Paul is saying that makes all the other things work. We will put on, Paul says, love. There's no way, absolutely no way that I can overstate the preeminence of love in Christian ethics. Jesus, of course, is the one who gets the ball rolling. He is the one that tells us that that love of neighbor and love of God is the greatest of all commandments. And Paul tells the church in Rome, if they have loved, then they have fulfilled the entire law of God. Paul tells his friends in Corneth, love is the measure of spiritual maturity. And if you want to see a grown-up Christian, you will see someone who has learned to love. And if I speak in tongues of men and angels, yet have not love, then I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I am, Paul says, nothing. And he tells the church in Galatia that the only thing, the only thing that counts for anything in the Christian life is faith working itself out in love. These are the clothes of a humanity that is renewed in Jesus. And Paul, you know, he shows up in the rescue boat. And we can finally experience this. And we say, look at those people, they're beautiful. 
like the fog that lifts and the light that streams in through the windows. Here are people that have learned to bear with one another. And here are people that are learning to forgive one another in the ways that they have been forgiven. And here are people that wear compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and over all of those things that they actually love. It's more than a list. It's a way of living and being in this world. And to put them on, church, is to put put them on, is to become more fully human after the image of our Creator. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear this, when I hear these things, when I hear these things read, I think of a couple things. And the first thing that I think is, uh, you know, man, I want to be like this. I want to put these things on. I want all of us to put these things on. And I want these things to flourish in my life. I want them to to grow in my life. I want to to grow up and and be that person. And maybe you feel that way too. But at the same time, I also think about how far from that I am. (laughs) How I fail in kindness. How I am slow and reluctant and hesitant to forgive. How I think about how I often falter in patience and in humility. And I'm aware of that every day of my life. And maybe, and maybe you know what that feels like too. And for sure, for sure, to the extent that I do not put on these clothes or I am stripping them off to wear some other clothes of my old life, for sure that is a matter of repentance in our life. And for people like us, there is forgiveness and there is grace And and that discipline of repentance is one of the things that God uses in our lives to grow us to look more like Jesus. But Paul wants his friends to know, and he wants us to know, that there are ways that we can learn these practices. There are ways that we can learn them and habituate them in our lives and inhabit them. And interestingly, that's the part in the letter that sounds an awful lot like going to church. And he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called in one body. In the body, right, that is Paul's favorite metaphor for the common life of the church. And he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly by teaching one another. Let it dwell richly in you by admonishing one another. Let it dwell richly in you by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. Do you see what it is that Paul is doing here? He's connecting the close of the new life to our life of worship together. He's saying that we, when, that, that we learn these things, we inhabit these things when we worship together. And what we are doing right now and what we have already done this morning and what we will do up through and past the benediction These things are helping us to learn and inhabit the virtues of the Christian life. And why does this happen? Well, it happens because when we worship, when we worship together, we are telling again and hearing again and living out again the true story of the world. That is what worship is. We tell the true story again. And we do all of this, we set our minds upon this because Jesus is at the center of that story. 
And he exhibits those virtues perfectly in that story. And he doesn't just do that. He exhibits them for us in that story. And so, for, for example, every week, like what took place this morning, we confess our sins together. And we are reminded that we are forgiven because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And we say to ourselves that we are a forgiven people, and we are forgiven people, that we are forgiven over and over again. And we know what it's like, because of that, to experience forgiveness. It's not some magical, foreign thing to us, right? We know it. It's visible even in our elements and in our liturgy. So what happens when someone you love lets you down, when that person betrays you? What happens when someone close to you hurts you? Do you need then to go out and research what forgiveness is? Do you need to take a class on forgiveness? No because we have been inhabiting it together. We've been learning it together. We have been experiencing it together. It is becoming the habit of our life. We've been tra- we have been training ourselves in it, and, and, and as Paul says, we have been training one another about it. We've been admonishing one another about it. We've been singing songs about it with thankfulness, and this is what happens when we worship together. Worship is how we learn the new life that Jesus has given us. And worship is one of the ways that we let the beauty and the glory and the power of the new life that Jesus has for us flood into our lives. So if we want to be people that learn how to live this new life, we will absolutely and positively be people who also worship. Because in our worship, we learn the life of Jesus, and together we become like the one we worship. Let me pray for us. Father, may we be a people who put on your love. May may we be a people who live the way you made us to be, to love our neighbor, our enemies, to forgive, to be kind, as you have showed us kindness. So by your grace that we ask that you would move us in these ways, move us in ways of repentance and faith and in love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.